after uh, last night's um, <laughs> UFC MMA no holds barred skit night. Now, uh, that guy who played me, now how old's that guy? 24. Now, how old's that, the little girl that played my wife? Six. That's about right. Reminds me of a story. I've been spending the whole week talking. I, you know, about strategies and what's out there and how we can engage it and what have you. And, um, and I would like to spend our last two sessions uh, uh, with uh, our thoughts directed toward our, our blessed Savior and, uh, and talking about Jesus and talking about Him. And, of course, it's all about presenting uh, Jesus Christ the righteous, our advocate, our Savior, and um, <clears throat> there needs to be a proper understanding of who he is and who's, who is Jesus. And uh, that, by, that name, um, you know, the name that everyone will someday bow to before is a name that, quite frankly, all of our evangelical friends, I think, do hold in very high esteem. I think we've got to recognize that. We've got to recognize that there is a there is a reverence for Jesus Christ. And, um, and so I guess if there's, uh, there aren't any, too many things more important if we want to edify one another than to uh, sharpen one another's thinking in terms of the person of Christ. And so what I'd like to finish up with in these last two sessions is talking about Jesus, the office, the offices and the work of, of Christ. So please join me in in prayer. Father God, we do pray that you would give us right thoughts about your Son, Jesus, whom you sent as a ransom to free us, to rescue us, to redeem us. Help us, Father, to have a proper understanding of what the Scriptures declare about our blessed Savior. That we, my Father, know to the fullest extent what it means to have His name upon us. That He would declare that He is our, our brother. That, Father, that knowledge would be so wonderful to us that words could not express. Help us, Father, to know these things. Help us, Father, to convey these things in His name. Amen. I think that in the same way that a synergistic gospel requires the preaching of an obtainable law, a truncated view of Jesus requires the stratification of Christians into the categories I talked about last night, of carnal and spiritual. I think one of the reasons the carnal-spiritual model works so well is because men are unacquainted with the bottomless pit of their own depravity, and the heavenly and incomprehensibly glorious nature of the offices and work of Christ. I think that one is hard-pressed to find an answer to question number 23 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism in today's 
uh, Christian culture. I only say that because uh, I, I, as a pastor, I wouldn't have been able to answer this question. What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? There are, I think, in the same way there are modern sacraments, sacrament, if you will, of, of uh, the Lord's, the sinner's prayer and what have you, I think there are kind of modern and popular offices that we see uh, in Christendom today. I'll just name a couple of them, and you can just uh, you know, extrapolate from that, and you can send that where you want, and you're thinking, but this is just a couple of examples to, to at least make you aware of the way a lot of people think. We have Christ the husband. I remember talking to one lady, a single mom, sees the idea of Christ as the bridegroom, Ephesians 5.32, Mark 9.15. She was talking to me and really talking about Jesus as if Jesus was her husband. The void left in her singleness was something she was hoping would be filled by Christ. And sadly, it wasn't working very well. Then we have Christ the friend. Right? The popular song when I was a youth pastor we used to sing was, you know, Jesus is a friend, he's a friend next to you. Is that, okay? Jesus is a friend, so sing along, you know. Pinch a friend's nose, pinch a friend. You know. <laughs> and that comes from John 15:15. 15, 15. And of course, friends aren't demanding. Friends can be talked into things. Friends can be talked out of things. It is true that Jesus said, I have called you friends. But I think it's interesting to note that the apostles never refer to Jesus that way. Nor do they refer to themselves as the friends of Jesus. Paul doesn't say to the churches at Galatia, Paul, a friend of Jesus. It's Paul, a slave. Paul, the bond slave. Paul in chains, not Paul, a friend of Jesus. Then we have what I call Christ the imaginary companion. The asking of Christ into one's heart gives the idea that Jesus is not to be viewed as ascended and at the right hand of the Father, but in our hearts. And certainly, in a sense, this is true. He has sent His Spirit into our hearts, Galatians 4.6. But this gives rise to the notion of Jesus as an imaginary companion with whom antiphonal dialogue can be had because He lives here in my heart. Now, I don't want to sound overly critical because I have viewed Christ in all these ways but I found it to be a very frustrating and disheartening brand of Christianity. I think there are a few things more edifying to our Christian friends than to introduce them to the notion of the one true mediator and his offices of redemption. Christ the mediator. That uh, was a new concept to me. Nothing could be more sensible in terms of a remedy for man's dilemma death and darkness, than to have a man with the power of God reconcile man's relationship with God. Human ingenuity and innovation have proven to be consistent failures in this endeavor. Our mediator, our savior, though a man, is also God. This is a point, it's not on my notes, but I think it's an interesting point that you might want to make because people hold to the idea of the essentials of believing in the Trinity uh, of the hypostatic union, of Jesus being fully God and fully man. A good question is to ask, why, why is that important? You know, you might want to ask your friends that. Can you explain to me, why, why is it important that Jesus is fully God, fully man? Why is it important that we understand that there is a trinity? 
that there is one God in three persons. It's just a good uh, conversation to have because if you don't have that, if you don't have that kind of at least somewhat solid, other things just fall apart. But the nature of Jesus is both humanity and deity, man and God. He is therefore not only the appropriate representative of the human race as a man, he is also an, an insurmountable force in his battle over the wickedness of iniquity. As the Catechism puts it, he will not sink under the infinite wrath of God. God graciously sent his son to negotiate peace, if you will, as a mediator, and he is our only hope. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now the offices of our mediator, redeemer, are prophet, priest, and king. Now, some people don't like lists. They don't like things to be put into categories. Oftentimes, categories are pretty contrived, and I don't think there's really a verse in the Bible that explicitly states the offices in that way. However, it has been the uniform testimony of Orthodox biblical Christianity that these are the offices of Christ. And we need to show our friends that there's good reason for it. We need to be able to make that good biblical argument. Let us not ignore the nature of our mediator as we discuss these offices. In fulfilling these offices, Christ is endowed with the full sympathies of his humanity and the full force of his deity. That is to say, that as a man, there was never a more impassioned prophet, sympathetic priest, or empathetic king. Yet as deity, he is the quintessential mouthpiece of God, the immeasurably capable priest, and the overpowering potentate of a king. Prophet. You know, history has distilled the discipline of philosophy down to three categories. If you study philosophy, you have philosophy, and underneath it you have three categories. Um, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Metaphysics is what is real. Epistemology is what is, how do we know it, and ethics is what is, what is right. In the prophetic office of Christ... He brings to the human race something that we could never, ever acquire on our own, and that is true knowledge. Jesus is the light of the world, John 1, 4, and 5. He is the great prophet spoken of by Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. By the words of Peter... We know that this is a reference to Jesus, Acts 3, 22 and 23. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among, from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So we see here clearly the reference from Moses is of Jesus. Though I think it may be accurate to say that men are interested in true things. Right? Everybody wants to know who shot Kennedy. In the final analysis, men are not genuinely interested in truth. John 4.11 At least this was the opinion of Jesus. John 3.19 And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You see, truth is attractive only to a point. 
usually until the microscope of truth is aimed in your direction. Everybody wants to know who shot Kennedy, except for the guy who shot Kennedy. He doesn't want anybody to know who shot Kennedy. You see, Jesus, as prophet, did not come to reveal who shot Kennedy, or if there's life on Mars. It is much more personal than that. Speaking to us in his son, Hebrews 1-2, revealing that to us, God's word is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even in the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there, no, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Prophets tend to make things very uncomfortable. Elementary Christianity, I think, teaches us that when confronted with truth, in the person of Christ, men nailed him to a cross. Man's natural disdain for truth is the result of the fall. Even when the truth of Christ's prophetic utterances revealed the hope of salvation, men scoffed. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Well, by his word and by his spirit, Christ continues his office office of prophet to this very day. We still have the information that God wants us to have. But today, as then, the cross is foolishness to those who trust in their own sophistry and a stumbling block to those who trust in the weak and shifting sands of their own righteousness. So we must conclude that even though the message of the gospel, the message of Christ, is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16, the mere message, in a certain sense, is insufficient to save. Hence, the need for the second office, the office of priest. Now, you don't have to look too far in the Scriptures to find the office of priest, especially you know, as we look in the Old Testament. Prophets came to people on behalf of God. Priests came to God on behalf of the people. And we have the two positions. You know, the prophet is the mouthpiece of God. The priest comes to God on behalf of, on behalf of man. Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest is taken among men, is appointed for men and, the, and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. In the Old Covenant, the priest would bring the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant, to make atonement or satisfaction for sin. Of course, this was only valuable in that it pointed to the atoning work of Christ, Hebrews 11. The priesthood of Christ brings to close any functional use of a priesthood among men. A good question, I think, to ask our Christian friends as we talk about this is, do they think they need a priest? I mean, it's kind of a trick question because a lot of them will say, well, no, I don't need a priest, but we do need a priest and we have a priest. And his name is Jesus. That, for me, I just have to tell you, opened up a whole realm of thinking. Because what that does is that opens, it really opens up the Old Testament a lot bigger. Because when you start looking at what the priests did, you know, it's a, the funny thing about Old Testament, New Testament, is that the New Testament is so short. And, um, you know, it, just the cross, for example. You look in the New Testament and you look at the crucifixion. And it says, and they crucified him. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And they crucified him, and they crucified him, and they crucified him. But it's not until you go into the Old Testament that you see a real picture of the crucifixion. It's almost like the New Testament in some sense is a summary. When you go back into the Old Testament, you see the full picture of it. I mean, it just opens up so many things. And I think understanding the, these offices, especially looking here at the office of priest, it, you know, when you go back to the Old Testament and you start reading about the priests, it brings in a whole new dimension to, to what they did. Nonetheless, we don't need a priesthood among men because Christ is our high priest, Hebrews 5.10. And his priesthood is a superior priesthood. You see, human priests had to make sacrifices for their own sins. Human priests have great limitations in their own sympathies. Human priests are limited by their own mortality, Hebrews uh, 5.3, 4.15. Our high priest doesn't know any of these limits. Hebrews 7.23-25, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. But more than all these things, human priests are limited by the very nature of the sacrifice they offer. You see, it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. A body was prepared for Christ that he might offer it up to God, thus fully satisfying his divine justice. And this was not done in a man-made temple, but in the true holy of holies, in the true sanctum sanctorum, heaven itself. And this is the great sacrifice that pacifies God toward us. I know it was an eye-opening thing for me. It affected me a great deal when I came to recognize that uh, Jesus, as our priest, enters into the holy of holies and presents his own blood. He is not only the priest, he is the sacrifice. It is just a wonderful picture, and I think there's a consoling agent to that, and there's a comfort to that when we recognize the depth of the work of our priest. And although Christ's priestly sacrifice was once for all, his priestly intercession continues. John 17, Romans 8:34. In the same way that Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, this is, by the way, a, a nice little uh, comparison to make when you want to talk about the priesthood of Christ, especially as it relates to how he holds us up in our faith. I mean, uh, you know, I, a lot of these things come back to uh, uh, a Calvinistic understanding of salvation. But you ask your friends, uh, you know, what's the real difference between Judas and Peter? What's the real difference between Judas and Peter in terms of what happened? Because they both failed, right, miserably. I mean, they both failed. And you can't just say one failure was kind of a worse type of sin than the other, a denial or a betrayal. Maybe betrayal is worse, but, you know, I mean, they're both failures. And they might say, well, the difference is Peter repented. Right? Peter, Peter came back. But what's the real difference? The real difference is found 
in a dialogue between Jesus and Peter, when Jesus says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says something pretty interesting. He says, and when you come back, feed my sheep. The natural question is, when I come back from what? I think the answer is, when you come back from failing. You see, they both failed, but Peter's faith didn't fail. And why did his faith not fail? Why did he come back? Because his priest prayed for him. He interceded for him. And that's the difference. That's why our faith doesn't fail. Our faith doesn't fail because Jesus has interceded for us. He ever intercedes for us. I think it's a really important point to make. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's obvious to you, but it certainly wasn't obvious to me, and I don't think, it was, I don't think it's obvious to a lot of people in terms of the priestly office of Christ. The Father receives as acceptable the sacrifice of the Son. And the Father hears the prayers of the Son. He is the priest in whom we must trust. Christ's prophetic office assures the veracity of the true message, and His priestly office assures the satisfaction of the Father's divine justice. Yet there is another office, that of conquering king. And I would like to discuss that after we take uh, a short break. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that we would have the greatest affection for our Savior, Jesus. That our minds and our hearts would so seek to know and understand what Jesus has done for us, who He is. We pray, Father, that You would foster an intimacy in our heart. We pray, Father, that the love that we have by faith would in fact subdue every aspect of our being, that we might have a great love for our Savior who has done such wonderful things for us. In His name we pray. Amen.